So I was wondering this week if Hollywood, if Hollywood were going to turn the book of Job into a movie, what genre would it be? It's definitely not going to be a comedy. Have you ever read the book of Job? Not a lot of laughs. Not going to be a comedy. It's probably not going to be a romance either, okay? After Job contracts this horrible skin disease in chapter number two, his wife says to him, are you still pretending you're a good man? Why don't you curse God and die? Okay, that is not one of the most romantic lines that's ever been spoken, okay? This is not on the order of you complete me or I was hoping it would be you. You know, it's just like you've got these really romantic and wonderful lines and then you got this. So it's not going to be a romance. Uh, it's not, it, you know, it's not going to be a thriller, although there is a lot of stuff that happens at the very beginning and at the very end. In the middle, it's just a lot of conversation and dialogue, not a lot of action. Michael Bay would struggle to make a film of the book of Job. I guess it could be a drama, but then it seems like it's more than a drama. Are you with me? Like there's a lot of drama in the book of Job, but it seems like there's more. Uh, it would make sense as a disaster flick, you know, because literally everything in Job's life is destroyed. But I think the most accurate telling of Job's story might be as a horror movie. <laughs> That's an uncomfortable laugh. I'm serious. <laughs> How else can we describe everything that happens to Job? Now, you may be roughly familiar with the outlines of his story, but when you start to dig into the details, you're like, oh my gosh, how could anybody ever endure so much in such a short period of time? Why don't we do this? Why don't we go ahead and read a good section of chapter one and chapter two so you get a sense of what this poor man actually went through. Job chapter number one, let's begin reading here in verse number one. This is what the scripture says. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, big family. He owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen and 500 female donkeys. I don't know why it specifies female donkeys right there. I've, I've read so many commentaries trying to figure out like, why does it specify female donkeys instead of male or just, it, but it doesn't. Anyway, okay. <laughs> he also had many servants. He was in fact the richest person in that entire area. Verse number four, Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. So this is the part of the horror movie at the very beginning where everything is bright and sunshiny and everybody smiles and it just seems like, oh, everything's going to go so well for them. But then we jump on down. Chapter number one, verse 13. The Bible says this, one day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals, killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Job is like, what? I'm sorry, what? Like, my animals are gone? And my employees have been killed? Are, no, like, no. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped 
to tell you. The fire of God in the Old Testament is a phrase denoting lightning. There was a lightning storm that set the surrounding countryside on fire. And it was so fast in that dry desert that literally the animals and the shepherds were killed before any of them could escape. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Wave after wave is hitting Job. Then verse 18. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Job, your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides, a, a tornado. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up and he tore his robes in grief. He shaved his head. Then the Bible says he fell to the ground in worship. Talk about that next week doesn't stop there though. I mean, gosh, if that was the story, it's more than enough to qualify as a terrible, terrible set of circumstances. But we read in verse number two, that his trials are not over. And in fact, in verse number seven, the Bible says that Satan struck Job with terrible boils from head to toe. You ever got a blister? You ever got a sunburn and then gotten blistered? You ever had a boil? I don't answer that out loud because I'm not sure I want to know. But like, <laughs> horrific. And the Bible says he struck with boils from head to toe. The Bible says, and remember, this is ancient times. They didn't have medicine. There was like nothing you could do. So the Bible says in verse number eight, Job is reduced to scraping his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. It is hard to fathom just how horrific Job's circumstances were. Like when you really look at the details and you, I'm not even going to encourage you to put yourself in his shoes today because I don't want you to spend the rest of the service weeping. This is tough stuff. And of course, it raises all sorts of questions. The, the chief of which is, why? Why would God allow all of this? It seems so excessive, so unnecessary. After the first or second loss, it feels like the devil is dogpiling on poor dude and God's just standing there letting it all happen. Whew. In fact, Job's trials are so upsetting his afflictions are so awful that many, many theologians over the years have actually suggested that Job was not a real man, that instead his story is fictional. It's a parable. It's made up and exaggerated so that we can learn how to suffer well. And honestly, that would make the book of Job a lot more palatable. If I could say, oh, well, thankfully there wasn't a real guy who suffered at this level. There were no children that died. Those poor fuzzy animals, they didn't get burnt up in a lightning storm. If I could say that about this book, then it would certainly be a lot easier to read. It wouldn't have the emotion. You know, when you watch like a, a, a disaster movie and there's a big CGI flood that comes in and there are all these people that die in the CGI flood, you're not like crying over the fake people that died because they're not real, right? So if Job wasn't real, if his suffering wasn't literal, actual human suffering, then we can distance ourselves and we can just read the book intellectually. 
We can just learn the lessons from the story. And honestly, there is some merit to this idea that perhaps Job was not uh, a real man, okay? So first, the scripture often uses uh, imagined or fictional stories to teach spiritual truths. You realize that, right? Like the, the Bible will often paint a fictional scenario and then use it to communicate a spiritual truth. So think about the parables of Jesus. He teaches in parables dozens of times and every one of those are fictional. They're made up, imagined stories that are designed to speak a truth. So Jesus would say, a certain man went on a journey and he called his servants together before leaving. That man didn't really exist. The servants didn't really exist. It's a made up story to communicate the truth. There once was a woman who lost a very valuable coin. Now, maybe in history, there was a woman who lost a very valuable coin, but it's clear that Jesus is kind of making up a story here to teach a particular truth. So the parables are fictional stories that Jesus used in order to teach us a truth. There's another example in second Samuel, uh, the prophet Nathan goes to the King David and he goes to King David and he tells him this story about a farmer who has a a, a little lamb. It's the only lamb he owns on his entire farm. And it's the cutest little lamb you ever did see in your entire life. He loves this little lamb. He treats it like a child. It's getting weird how like great he treats this little lamb. And Nathan tells David that the farmer has a greedy neighbor and the greedy neighbor actually breaks into his property. He steals the little baby lamb, kills it, cooks it and eats it because he's a jerk. <laughs> David, the king is furious. He's like, tell me who this dude is. He is not going to get away with that in my kingdom. And in that moment, the prophet Nathan reveals, oh, that story didn't happen. It's an allegory. That story is meant to show you what you did to, De uh, to uh, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who you sexually assaulted. You took from him the thing that he loved the most. It's a fictional story that's designed to teach a very real spiritual truth. So it's at least possible that the story of Job is a fictional story that's meant to communicate truth. It's possible. Uh, it's possible that they were not real people who died and he didn't have disgusting boils and all those different things. And there are a few other kind of points that are pieces of evidence that might point towards that conclusion. So for instance, the story of Job is set in a very vague time in biblical history, okay? We actually don't know for sure when it occurs in the chronology of the Old Testament. Our best guess, based on some clues in the scripture, is that Job's story happened around the time of the patriarchs. So that's like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the middle part of the book of Genesis, it seems like the story of Job is happening there. So it's really, really early in the chronology of the Bible, but there isn't anything specific that would tell us when it actually happened. So one of the things that people are, are often surprised by is the Bible goes to great lengths to kind of situate stories in specific historical places and times. There are a lot of details that are included in the scripture that are designed to tell you when something happened. So think about Isaiah. Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. That tells us very specifically when in history that happened, right? In the first year that Trudeau was elected prime minister, my son was born. Well, that tells you the time period that your son was born in. And again and again in the scripture, we have these, these details that tell us when and where something happened. It anchors them as truth in history. And yet Job is missing the date details. We don't know when exactly it was written. Now, 
Now, the other thing that people will often point to, uh, to say that Job's not, this is not an actual factual historical story, is that the book of Job exhibits some very clear literary design, literary design, okay? So uh, notice how Job's story that we read here in chapter number one, it is framed by superlatives. It is framed by bests and worsts. So we read that Job was living the best life you could ever imagine for somebody in the ancient world. We read that Job was a completely righteous man. We read that he was the richest man in the region. The Bible says later that he was the most blessed man in the land of Uz. So we have these highs, these bests, these superlatives. And then of course, he goes through the loss of all of those things. He goes through the worst circumstances that anybody could ever imagine. The loss of his business, the loss of his family, the loss of his reputation, the loss of his health. And so we have this very intentional framing. You can also see the framing and the, the, um, the literary design coming forward, when you pay attention to the fact that every one of the tragedies that befalls Job ends with the same refrain or statement. So every single time one of, you know, the, the servants runs in to, to report the tragedy that's just happened, he always ends it with the same statement. And I alone am the only one who escaped. Now, uh, is it possible that four separate times, everybody except one servant died and he was the only one who was able to escape and report what happened? Yeah, it's possible, I guess. But what are the odds? Statistically speaking, it's not likely. Instead, this seems to be a, a, a story that is structured. It is built in such a way that it uses literary kind of design and motifs to communicate a truth, all right? Also, if you read the conversations between Job and his friends, remember we talked about the fact that chapters one and two are narrative. Then you get to like 30 something chapters in the middle where it's just people talking. And then finally you get to the end where there's a little more action happening at the end of the story. If you read the conversations between Job and his friends, you find out it's not prose, it's poetry, okay? If you read it in the Hebrew, you find out that it has structure and rhythm and rhyme and wordplay. If you were to read the conversations between Job and his friends in Hebrew, it would sound more like a rap battle than a debate. Are you with me? <laughs> you, you would be like, well, I mean, nobody talks like that though, right? Like, so what's going on here? There are a few different possibilities. One is that whoever wrote the book of Job, and you, you know that the Bible actually doesn't say, you know, after all of his fortunes were restored, Job sat down to write his story out, to bless all the people in all men. No, it, it actually doesn't even tell us who wrote the book of Job, okay? So, um, where's I going with that? Oh yeah. Okay. So, sorry. If you, if you sit down and you listen to it, okay. One of the possibilities is whoever did write the book of Job took the gist of those conversations, whatever it was that Job had to say in his speech and his friend's speeches in response. And then they kind of wrote it down and they structured it in a way that's beautiful and poetic and deep and rich. That's all very possible. In fact, that happened several times in the Bible. Now, it's also possible that the conversations never really happened and the fact that it's so poetic and it's so structured is meant to be a clue that this is all a fictional story that's designed to teach spiritual truth, okay? So all of that is absolutely possible. But on the flip side, there's a lot of evidence that Job was a very real person and his suffering actually occurred. So uh, we talked about parables a moment ago. Parables often lack very, they lack very specific details, but we do find a lot of 
specific details in the book of Job. Okay, so we're told Job's name. All of his friends are named. They all have family relationships. They live in a very specific place in the land of Uz. If you contrast that, all of those details with the parables of Jesus, Jesus doesn't give many details. You know, in all the parables that Jesus ever told, only one character is ever named. Did you know that? Only one character in all of Jesus' parables ever got a name. So usually it's like a Samaritan man was traveling from Jerusalem to Samaria, okay? So it's just like general, right? Uh, Does anybody know the only person? Lazarus is the only person in a parable that gets a name, the rich man and Lazarus. And in fact, some scholars believe the fact that Lazarus got a name means that it wasn't actually a parable at all. It was Jesus revealing what actually happened to a man uh, named Lazarus when he died. So uh, there are a lot of details in the book of Job that we don't find typically in the parables that Jesus tells. And so that would lead us to believe, wow, there's so much detail that maybe this is an actual event that really happened. And although it's not set in a specific time, it is set in a specific location, the land of Uz. That's ancient Syria. So it's like kind of the northern end there of the the Holy Land. Um, It's set in a specific place. And Job is mentioned two other times later in the Bible, uh, once in the book of Ezekiel and once in the book of James, so Old Testament and New Testament. And both times Job is presented without any indication that he's not a real dude. Like the Bible speaks of him as if he was a real man with real suffering. So was Job an actual person? We don't know for sure. Like, I tend to think that he was. I tend to think that he was. And part of that is because when you're studying the Bible, there's kind of a principle that you need to keep in your mind. And that is, we assume a text is literal until we have very good reason to believe that it's not literal. Okay, so let me give you another example. You go to the book of Revelation, and in the middle of the book of Revelation, the Bible talks about a dragon coming up out of the sea, right? And the dragon is chasing a woman and trying to eat her baby. It's crazy. Revelation is wild, you guys. Okay. Now, if our, if our principle is we're going to take it literally until we have good reason not to, well, we're going to take that literally. So the Bible says in the end times, there's going to be a dragon that bursts forth out of the sea. Well, wait a sec though. Okay. A, dragons don't really exist. Hmm? B, the book of Revelation, it's an apocalypse. It's a book full of symbolism. And so we, we look at the genre, we look at the literary character and we would say, okay, I mean, is it possible that at the end times there is going to be a fire breathing dragon that pops up out of the ocean? I, sure, I guess. Or is it more likely that the dragon represents the world system that was personified at the time by the empire of Rome and will be rebuilt and we even see it being rebuilt around us today? Yeah, that makes more sense. So we take a story as literal unless and until we have good reason not to. And frankly, I don't think there's a a really compelling reason to say that Job wasn't a real dude who actually went through these trials and suffering except that it makes the story a little easier for us to swallow. And we've got to be really, really careful about doing that. We can't say, oh, I don't like that part. So you know what? The author, God, Jesus, he didn't really mean that. He couldn't have. 
So we're going to allegorize it. We're going to symbolize it. We're going to kind of round off those rough edges and we're going to make it something that sounds a little more pleasing to us and our modern sensibilities. We've got to be so careful about doing that. It's not to say there is no place in the scripture where we need to understand the text is allegory or it's symbol, fictional, whatever. But we just want to be really careful that we don't start um, knocking all the hard edges off of scripture because pretty soon we're going to be left with something different than scripture. Okay. All right. Now, uh, in the end, (laughs) it doesn't really matter whether Job is real or not. If you find yourself reading the book of Job and maybe you're new to it or whatever it might be. And you're like, I just cannot get past chapters one and chapter two. This bothers me so much. I couldn't imagine there being a God who would ever allow these sorts of things to happen. If you're at the point where you can't get beyond chapters one and two, then it's okay. You've got my permission. Just look at it fictionally. Look at it as, look at it as a parable. I don't think it is, but I might get to heaven and God's like, no, it's clearly a parable, dude. Why couldn't you pick up on some clues? All right. Read the room. Um, it's okay. <laughs> what I don't want you to do is to be pushed away from the text because the stuff that it says is hard. If you start getting pushed away because the stuff that you, that it says is hard, you're going to get pushed away from the entire Bible because almost all of it is difficult. It's hard to understand. It's hard to live out. It's difficult. All right. And so if you find yourself at that point, Hey, go for it. Think about it as a parable and then re-engage as you see fit. In the end, Job's trials didn't cause him to lose his faith and they shouldn't cause us to lose ours either. Right. Job's trials didn't cause him to lose his faith. So it's wild to me that you know, us thousands of years later on the other side of the planet, we would be like, oh, I couldn't believe in a God who would ever do anything like that. It's always surprising to me how people respond and react to suffering differently based on whether or not they are suffering or they see someone else suffering. Listen, it is counterintuitive, okay? If I told you there is a strong difference in the way that people respond and react to suffering based on whether they're the ones who are suffering or whether they see somebody else, a third party suffering, you would think, oh yeah, people who are suffering, it's got to push them far away from God. Because God, why would you ever allow this to happen to me? And people who are not suffering, they've got to look at those circumstances and say, you just need to be faithful. It'll all be okay. Everything's going to turn out all right. That is not the way life works. You know what actually ends up happening? People who suffer are drawn closer to God. Their faith is deepened and strengthened. And the people who take this detached mindset, they look at it and they're like, oh no, suffering is awful. I could never believe in a God who would do that. They, They might say like, I could never believe in a God who allows poverty to exist in the world. But go talk to people in poverty. And you know what you'll find out? Sometimes the people with the least amount of resources have the strongest amount of faith. Isn't it weird That stuff that detached observers say should undermine your faith actually strengthens your faith. Uh, People will say, I can't, I can't believe in a God who would allow wars and violence in the world. I just, I could not believe in that kind of God. Well, listen, that's easy to say when the last war fought on Canadian soil was 150 years ago. Are you with me? Go talk to our Ukrainian brothers and sisters and ask them whether or not they believe in God. They're going to say, yeah, I need God now more than ever. Our, Our isolation, our privilege insulates us from the lessons of suffering. It's easy when you're not suffering to pontificate. 
It's easy when you're not suffering to talk about how, you know, faith is no good because it can't help you when you're suffering. When you are the one who's suffering, you learn just how valuable faith is. I, I think of a, of a pastor back in the 1920s. His name was Arthur Gossip, which is kind of an unfortunate name, but it is what it is. <laughs> you know how like, if you got the last name Baker, it's because somebody in your past family was a baker. <laughs> he, must have had, he must have had a gossip somewhere in the past. Okay. He was a pastor in Scotland in the 1920s. And uh, very tragically, his wife passed away suddenly. Like young lady, vibrant, completely healthy. This was totally out of the blue. She died on a Saturday. And the next day, he stood in front of his congregation and he preached a message entitled, When Life Tumbles In, What Then? When life falls apart, what are we going to do? Now, this message is widely regarded as one of the best sermons given in the last hundred plus years. Like it is super, super famous. And he said in that sermon, tears pouring down his face as he poured out his heart in front of his congregation. He said, you people in the sunshine may believe the faith, but we in the shadow must believe it because we have nothing else. Job's trials didn't cause him to lose his faith. And trials like Job went through shouldn't cause us to lose our faith either. Yeah. Now, whether or not Job was like a real dude or it's all a fictional parable, it's kind of a pointless discussion because whether or not Job was real, I definitely am. I'm just letting you guys know I'm a real boy. <laughs> I know. Okay. Whether or not the suffering and trials and afflictions that Job went through were factual and historical. My sufferings and trials are real. I can promise you that. I've had afflictions. I've had heartache and loss. I've had people that have stabbed me in the back or abandoned me. I have, and you have as well. So while Job's story, it presents this extreme example of misfortune, the difference between us and Job is one of degree and not kind. Listen, we are way more like Job than we would ever want to admit. Consider everything Job lost. He lost his business. Anybody ever lost a business? I know people in this church that have. Anybody ever lost a significant sum of money? You, you thought, man, this is a sure thing. Up and to the right, this stock cannot lose, baby. And then the market crashed and your Bitcoin, you know, dropped and you lost money. We've been there. He lost his friends. Have you ever had a friend that moved far away? Some of you were the friend that moved far away. We've lost friendships. He lost his animals. And animals in his day were, you know, they were a source of income and revenue, okay? But like, have you ever lost an animal you loved? You ever lost a beloved pet? He lost his reputation. Ever had anybody speak negatively about you? Have, ever had anybody lie about you? Yeah, we have. He lost his family. Who hasn't had a loved one pass? He lost his health. Go read the crazy faith wall and see how many people in our church have received a negative health diagnosis. We're more like Job than we would ever want to admit. The suffering that we go through and the suffering that Job's go through, it's not a difference of kind. It's not like he had some exorbitant and excessive kind of suffering that we would never be able to relate to. No, the truth is every single one of us have suffered in the same way that this guy did. 
So on the one hand, we read the book of Job and we see ourselves in the book. But on the other hand, and oh, I hope you catch this. I hope you understand what I'm about to say. I was talking to somebody in my office um, before we got started and we were talking about this series. And I said, today is going to be the most important message in the entire series. We're going to do six, seven weeks of this. Today is going to be the most important message. And it's because of what I'm about to share with you. Job's story doesn't ultimately highlight our suffering. It highlights our savior. Yes. Job's suffering, it is not meant to spotlight you and the hardships that you've had in life. It is not meant merely to inspire you that you can keep going when life gets hard. No, the truth of the story of Job is so much better than any of that. It doesn't highlight our suffering. It highlights our savior. Remember what we said last week, God is the main character. He is the, he's the one at the center of this story. So when we read the book of Job, our ultimate focus shouldn't be on ourselves. It should be on the Savior. It shouldn't be on Job. It should be on Jesus. See, Job is what we call a type or a shadow of Christ. A type or a shadow. I'm teaching you guys some theology today. You ready for it? A type or a shadow is a word that describes a person or an event in the Old Testament that if you've got the eyes to see it, it will actually point you forward to Jesus. Are you with me? It is something that happens in the Old Testament that is meant to remind you and point you towards the person and work of Jesus. Now, the types and shadows that we see in the Old Testament, they are imperfect pictures of the Messiah. But when we examine those events or those people back through the lens of Jesus, then they take on all sorts of new dimension and meaning and value. I can illustrate this for you. I'm going to put something here on the screen. Let's go ahead with it. Who is that? Okay, you guys know this. Okay, that's good. I was like, I was kind of hoping you guys were going to be like, I don't know. Nobody important, I guess. No, okay. Here. I would recognize that silhouette anywhere, you guys. I would never mistake who that person is. Now, obviously, this is just a basic outline. You look at her, she is way more beautiful than what this picture reveals. Woo, I'm on it today. I'm on it. Okay. This picture lacks detail. And it might be exaggerated in some ways and, you know, like a shadow that follows you. Yes, it's a representation of you, but it's not a perfect representation. It's attached. It's meant to, to um, point towards the, the, the real substance. Are you with me? I would recognize this silhouette absolutely anywhere. When you start to, when, when, when you start to read the Old Testament with open eyes, you will start to see the outline of Jesus all over that thing. You'll be like, well, well, I mean, that reminds me a lot of Jesus and what he did. Or that reminds me a lot of this event that happened in the gospels. That is not just coincidence. It's intentional. God has designed it that way. So there are multiple layers. If you start paying attention to Job, you're going to see the outline of Jesus all over him. Now, just like the silhouette is not a perfect representation and the real thing is much better than the type or the shadow, so it is with Jesus and Job. So let's consider the ways in which Jesus is the better Job. In which Jesus went above and beyond. He went deeper and further and better than anything Job did. Understand that both 
Job, and Jesus suffered. But only Jesus suffered willingly. Job was a victim. He didn't choose it. It happened to him. And he had no choice but to endure it. Contrast that with our Savior who said, I'll go. I'll leave heaven. I'll leave behind every bit of glory I have with you, Father. And I'll, I'll enter earth and I'll suffer and I'll die for them. He did it willingly. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down willingly. Both Job and Jesus were righteous. The Bible specifically says that about them both. But only Jesus was perfect. Job, he, he followed all the rules. He did what he was supposed to do, but he wasn't perfect. Our Savior was. Both of them suffered affliction. Both of them suffered violence. Both of them had uh, afflictions and problems in their life. But Job's suffering specifically stopped short of death. Jesus didn't have those guardrails. He went all the way. He offered his life in his suffering. In the end, both were restored, but only Jesus was resurrected. See, Jesus is the better Job. He endured all of the things that Job did, and then even more. Can I tell you what the biggest difference is between the suffering of Job and the suffering of Jesus? The suffering of Job is instructive. It's supposed to inspire us. It's supposed to form an example of like how you can endure when life goes to hell. Like it is, it's, it's instructive. On the other hand, Jesus' suffering is redemptive. Yeah. Jesus' suffering is redemptive. Hey, when I read the story of Job, do you know what I feel? I feel pity. I feel bad for homie. Like this, this sucks, dude. I can't believe you had to go through that. I pity you, Job, for what you endured. When I read the story of Jesus, I don't feel pity. I feel gratitude. (laughs) Because Job's suffering didn't accomplish anything for anyone. It didn't accomplish anything for himself, much less his family, much less all of humanity. And yet Christ, when he suffered, the Bible says that he purchased our salvation. His suffering was not just instructive. It wasn't just a good example. It actually did something for me and for you. This is what the scripture says. Go to 1 Peter chapter number 2, verse 24. The scripture says, He, Christ, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. His wounds have purchased our healing. Yeah. Two chapters later, Peter says in in chapter number four, verse one, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. He suffered, why? Well, he suffered for us. He suffered for me. He suffered for you. Christ suffered for us in the flesh so that we could be free from our battle with sin. The suffering that Job went through is sad, but that's the extent of it. Thankfully, when we read the story of Job back through our understanding of our God and our Savior, it is not merely sad. It is something so much more beautiful than that. Jesus 
actually saved us by his suffering. Suffering is something that we look at as like horrible and it's always bad. And it's something to be avoided at all costs. We'll do everything we can. And yet in God's economy, he takes this terrible thing called suffering. He turns it on its head and he saves us from the suffering of sin by the suffering of the son. Woo! Okay. You guys are asleep or I'm not preaching because this is way, way, way too good. I told you last week, we get hung up on Job and all of his trials and all that sort of stuff. But this sucker is deep, man. You can dig and dig and dig. And every time you dig another layer, you're going to discover another beautiful truth here in this passage. And the ultimate truth, if you dug down to the very bottom, you got to the basement, you would see not Job, but Jesus. You would see not your suffering, but you would see the Savior who saves us from our suffering. And so the invitation today is not, hey, come and suffer like Job. (laughs) The invitation is you don't have to suffer because Jesus suffered for you. You don't have to pay for your sins because Jesus did it for you. Suffering isn't going to affect anything for you unless it's Jesus who suffered in your place. I'm going to invite everyone in the room, bow your head and close your eyes. If you're here this morning and you say, you know what? I need a savior. I am tired of suffering on my own. I need somebody, something, God to come in, to make me new and to save me from the life I've been living. Then I'm going to invite you to repeat this simple prayer after me. You can say it in your heart, just between you and God. Jesus, today, I accept your death in my place. Thank you for suffering for my sins so that I could be set free. God, when I face suffering in the days to come, help me not to be overwhelmed, bitter, but instead help me to see that you are at work in every circumstance, accomplishing your plan for me and for the world. I offer my heart to you today. I trust you with it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, if, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, then somebody, Kyle, is here. He's going he's gonna, to, somebody's around. Uh, he's going to help you with that. If you, if you say, no, I, I've been a Christian for a long time, could you, could you do two things? Could you, could you start to read the scripture and look for the outlines of Christ? Because I promise you, it'll make it so rich. You won't be able to put it down when you start to see it that often. And secondly, when you think about suffering, Don't think about what you're enduring and don't think about what you're losing. Instead, think about what Jesus has purchased and given you through his suffering on your behalf. 